Hey there. Thanks so much for joining us for the Life Support Podcast. It's where we talk to providers, community members, experts, and others about their experiences with health and the systems that create it. Hey there, listeners. This is Rachel. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For this episode, we talked to Dr. Kent Corso, a renowned suicidologist that's also a dear friend to Sihu and has partnered with us on projects across the country over the last few years. Dr. Corso shares his expertise in suicide prevention and management, uh, telling us what we can do as general community members, as neighbors, friends, loved ones, um, and also specifically what our provider network can do to address suicide, um, whether it's day-to-day practice or really in those crisis situations. So we're very thankful Dr. Corso took the chance to uh, talk to us today and share some of this information in advance of suicide prevention month, which is this September. So again, thank you all for listening in. Um, Stay tuned to the very end when Dr. Corso challenges us to Google him um, and see what we might find. Um, But but all all jokes aside, we're so thankful for the conversation and the fact that we have actionable next steps around what we can do as a network, as a community to address this critical issue. Enjoy. Hey, Dr. Corso, thanks so much for sitting down to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. And I know you and I have worked together for a long time, but uh, for those who don't know you, can you introduce yourself? Tell us uh, who you are and what you do. Sure. I am a clinical psychologist and a board certified behavior analyst, and I'm also a suicidologist. All right. Before we dive uh, a little bit deeper, can you please do a level set on language uh, when describing suicide? I think that that's something that was news to me when we started having conversations and would probably be really important for our listeners. Good question. Language is extremely important. Sometimes we use language without regard to nuances, without regard to thinking of the secondary or tertiary effects that it may have on people's uh, behaviors, people's thoughts, people's emotions. So first and foremost, we try to avoid the word committed. So we talk about people often say they committed suicide. And we try to avoid that for a few reasons. Uh, there, There is some evidence that it may perpetuate stigma and make it more difficult for people to voice that they're experiencing suicidal thoughts. And the, the reasoning behind that is that typically we commit two types of things, sins and crimes, and both are very heavily laden with value and judgment. And so because it would be pretty difficult for someone to say, I'm thinking of committing a crime or thinking of committing a sin uh, for the same reason. I'm thinking of committing suicide, which, by the way, of course, is also uh, for some people in the uh, Judeo-Christian background would be considered a sin. So if we want it to be to make it easier for people to voice their suicidal thoughts, what we need to do is start using the words killed himself died by suicide, or ended her life. So those are the three substitutes. It seems like suicide, especially youth suicide and rural suicide, has been in the news quite a bit lately. What does the news get right and what doesn't get covered or discussed like it should? You're right. 
It has been in the news quite a bit. And of course, these days, everything is sensationalist. Everything is a, a crisis. It's it's the worst we've ever seen. And look, the reality is the suicide rate continues to ascend over time. We have about 47 to 48,000 suicides in the United States per year. And uh, we've never seen a time in American history, in any specific state's history, or the history of any developed country in the free world. We've never seen any time in any of those places where we have reduced the suicide rate even by, let's say, 20% and then maintained that decreased rate. So when the news is covering these sorts of stories, they tend to zero in on the details and they and they tend to make uh, comments that are somewhat hyperbolic. Uh, the What they are getting right is that suicide's a big problem, uh, that that we don't have the solutions in many ways. What doesn't get covered is the nuances of how we need to start working upstream. There's a very common focus on if you see something, say something, which is gatekeeper training. Important, but certainly not the end-all be-all, uh, but it's what we've been doing for a half century. And then there's a lot of focus on getting people to the most intensive services like EMS, the emergency department, or ultimately psychiatric hospitalization. And the problem with that is none of those are really the solution. They're really just a fail safe for when people are uh, going to kill themselves and we need to keep them safe. But none of those really prevent it in the long term. So at the end of the day, we are playing the short game and we've been playing the short game for a half century and that's why we're losing this battle with suicide and we need to start playing the long game one other thing about media coverage has to do with firearms now this is a very sensitive topic in america obviously because we have the second amendment very strong feelings both pro-guns and anti-guns and after a suicide or after a school shooting, we see lots and lots of controversy around, oh, get all the guns off the streets. And then the response is, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And and this is the same tired, old argument uh, that polarizes us that we've been having for decades. And it's just not a helpful discussion. It doesn't really get at the issues. I am here to tell you, you can love your guns and love to prevent suicide. These are not working in opposition to one another. They are not this uh, all or nothing either or decision that that Americans have to make. Uh, and it, and it, in order to balance those two priorities of, let's say, preventing suicide and wanting uh, freedom uh, to to carry firearms or to purchase firearms the way it has to get balanced is is uh, simple mitigation strategies around firearm safety and that's a whole different discussion so we're we're not going to go into it so for you as an expert how do you think and talk about preventing suicide and how does that translate into prosper when i think about preventing suicide and talk about it. It's it's a lot of the the sorts of things that I was mentioning a, a few minutes ago uh, after your last question. And it comes down to our paradigm for suicide prevention and how we think about really looking at the antecedent situations that 
ultimately result in suicide. So those antecedent situations often have to do with a stressor. A relationship problem accounts for 42% of the triggers prior to suicides. We have uh, substance abuse issues. We have a uh, physical health illness, housing problem, financial problems, uh, some sort of an upcoming crisis in the in the next two weeks or in the recent, very recent past. So those are those common triggers. We've known those for a half century. Knowing them doesn't help us change uh, the problem. We can't just profile everyone who's having a relationship problem and screen them for suicide. Again, that's that's playing the short game, but it's also focusing on only the individual factors. Uh, and and people are different. Uh, there is a ton of diversity among uh, humans. And so when I think about PROSPER, the proactive reduction of suicides in populations via evidence-based research, what we're doing is not taking a one-size-fits-all approach to suicide prevention, rather tailoring that prevention strategy to the specific population. So for example, there's a lot of work I do in Idaho, Utah, Montana, Wyoming, Alaska. These are the states that have the highest suicide rates year after year. Their culture is very different from, let's say, the culture of um, New York City. Uh, or if I, if I was doing a project for uh, someone uh, in Canada, I do quite a bit of work abroad as well. So we need to think about culture and how that plays into suicide. Another factor that, that um, frankly, we, we frequently overlook has to do with the environment and the system and, and things that we're all exposed to. This, again, is similar to culture. So when we look at preventing suicide in an occupational setting, whether this is among law enforcement officers, whether this is in the military, uh, whether it's in other high-risk situations, what we know is that there are factors that the whole group is exposed to that can be mitigated. Uh, for example, in military settings, when there is low morale, when there's low accountability, or at least perceived low accountability among the uh employees or the soldiers or sailors, airmen, marines, what have you, when they feel that, they are at higher risk for suicide. Well, that's helpful to know because those are things the leader or the commander can change. And so when we think about preventing suicide effectively, we also have to think about not just these individual factors that drive people to kill themselves, but the system factors. And we need to directly address those system factors. At the end of the day, we need to do much more than simple gatekeeper training, which is what we've been doing for a half century. Lastly, we have to remember that many, many, many people think of suicide, but a small fraction actually attempt and an even smaller group actually die by suicide. And we also have to remember that most people who think of suicide don't really want to die. They just don't want to live with all of their pain and suffering, and they just don't know another way out. And the reality is that the vast majority of people who attempt suicide once and live will never attempt again. We hear this all the time from suicide attempt survivors where they'll say, the second I woke up, I was so grateful 
that I didn't die. Or the second I jumped from a bridge or from an overpass, I realized, oh my gosh, this is a mistake. Perfect. So can you talk a little bit about who Prosper is for? Prosper is for any community that is looking to proactively reduce suicides versus uh, sort of the status quo that we've been doing, which is um, to to when there's a suicide, we mobilize and, and try to address it. Prosper is about addressing it all the time and reducing all of the system factors that lead to suicide, increasing coordination between healthcare agencies, mental health agencies, EMS, and it's about empowering community members to take care of themselves. There are some cultures where helping each other, doing that gatekeeper training, if you see something, say something, culturally they're unlikely to engage in that behavior well then let's at least get them to help themselves if they're not willing to reach out and help each other so prosper is for anyone uh, oftentimes we do these trainings in two different sort of gears one gear is to uh, gatekeepers medical providers people who are in an official helping role and then the other gear the other context is within the community and oftentimes they're our first responders there, although our first responders, law enforcement, sometimes attend the, the first type of training. Uh, but community members are at that second type of training, and we are empowering them to understand suicide. If we can help people better understand suicide as a construct, we're going to make more progress. There's that old saying that if you give someone a fish, they eat for a day. If you teach them to fish, they eat for a lifetime. And we want to teach people how to fish when it comes to suicide so that they know what it looks like in its various forms and contexts. And they instinctively know how to address it. And it's not about trying to remember what they learned in a one-hour training or a two-hour training. Great. So I love that idea of having this community engagement and response around suicide. That It's not just one sector or one agency that's responsible. It's, it's everyone. Um, but one of the areas where I know we've had a lot of conversation over the last few years, um, both within this organization and I think at the broader national levels, the role of primary care. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of primary care in preventing and managing suicide? That is an excellent question. Look, primary care is the default mental health system in our country. It is also the front line and frankly, the trenches of our medical system. And so the role for preventing suicide in primary care is to ask the question. If you don't ask, you don't know. 45% of people who die by suicide saw their primary care provider within 30 days. 20% who died by suicide in one study saw their primary care provider within the last 24 hours. So it is incumbent on us to start asking more. Now, there, there are some recent studies showing that screening doesn't work. We can't just set up these robust uh, screening programs and screen everybody. And so the, we have to take it sort of one layer deeper and not just do a shotgun approach where we ask everybody in the world, every appointment, are you thinking of killing yourself? We need to be much more mindful of that. And 
focus on, first of all, the relationship within the medical context. And uh, we also need to know that even if we ask the question, the person may initially not disclose. They may say, no, I'm not thinking of killing myself when they actually are. And we do know that there there is uh, sort of a trend like that. So I know that's not the neatest answer that, that people usually appreciate for primary care when you're developing algorithms and clinical pathways and so, so forth. Um, it's not to say that you can't screen every patient, let's say during vitals, um, but you just need to be aware that there's going to be some false negatives, uh, some false positives. Um, and at the end of the day, once we do identify suicidal persons, what we need to do is actually treat them. Oftentimes in primary care, even in mental health care, when we ask questions and discover that the person is feeling suicidal or has had recent suicidal thoughts, we all of a sudden discontinue our discussion of the presenting problem and sort of shift to a risk assessment. And that's great. Uh, but when we finish the risk assessment, what most providers do is if the person does not need to be hospitalized, they shift their attention and the treatment plan back to the chief complaint. And that is a big mistake. What we need to do is treat those suicidal symptoms until they haven't occurred for about 30 days. So in short, primary care should be doing some treatment of suicidal symptoms. And the main way they would do that is by helping patients develop a crisis response plan, which is not an administrative tool. It is a dynamic, ongoing plan for coping and teaching the patient how to cope with their suicidal thoughts until, again, until they haven't had those thoughts for at least 30 days. Perfect. I think that's so important. Um, so obviously you do so much work in this space and the training that you do makes a real difference in the ways that um, providers and communities um, prevent suicide. Can you tell me a story about how suicide prevention training really does make a difference in people's lives? Sure. So suicide prevention training tends to only make a difference in people's lives when they apply that training. Part of the goal or one of the goals when uh, we conduct PROSPER is to ensure that we are changing people's practice habits. And practice habits don't change without first uh, addressing their mindset, uh, their understanding of suicide prevention, any misunderstandings, and absolutely addressing sort of this new paradigm that we need to adopt versus falling into habits and uh, mindsets that align with an old paradigm. So telling you a story, uh, <laughs> I, I train thousands of people a year. Um, you know, abroad and, and here in the States and in, in Prosper. And I have frequently received emails uh, the day after the, the training concludes, a week after it concludes, where a provider said, oh my gosh, thank you very much. This has been so helpful. Uh, I, for the first time, had to use it and realized that 
not only does it work, which is funny, they're like, this works. <laughs> um, not only does it work, but I realized that how I was going about it was not as empowering to patients or it was not as client-centered, patient-centered. It was a bit heavy-handed and, and I never realized how um, that was impacting the way the patient would or would not share their suicidal thoughts with me. So that that's uh, sort of a common thing that that happens uh, when when we uh, when I train people in Prosper. Great. Well, um, lastly, I think uh, very importantly, where can people find you so that they can learn more about um, this critical issue and some resources available uh, to work with their communities? You can find me online at www.ncrbehavioralhealth.com. And um, uh, if you Google me, you, you uh, uh, I don't know, you might come up with a few, <laughs> a few sources too. I have a YouTube channel. I've done a lot in the area of primary care, integrating behavioral health into primary care. So there's a, a YouTube channel with some sort of demonstration videos and other uh examples of where I've spoken at conferences or, or done trainings at conferences. So thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity to, to do this. All right. Thank you to Dr. Kent Corso for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks so much for listening. Please find us on social or our website to learn more about what CHU does and how to support with and engage our work. Until next time, let's all support each other with a little life support. Thank you.